Let's play a little word association game this morning. If you have something to write with, take it out, pen, paper, or iPad, whatever it is you're writing with, your phone this morning. I'm going to say a word, and you're going to write down the first three words that come to mind when I say this word. Are you ready? No. <laughs> That's also a word. <laughs> okay, so, so here it is. Here are the rules. You can't stop and think. You can't ponder. No chin scratching, head scratching. Just go right away. The first three things, three words you think of when I say this word. Are you ready? Yes. The word is church. What comes to mind when you hear the word church? A few of you, go ahead. Grace, community, body. It's almost the name of a church right there. (laughs) What's that? People. God full and empty? Holy and empty. Okay. Family. Say what? Fun. Oh, that's great. <laughs> great. What else? Love. Experiencing God. Two words. Worship. Freedom. Fellowship. You're being very churchy this morning. Anyone want to take a risk and be a little more honest? What else comes to mind? Boring. Thank you. What else? Say what? Building, hypocrites, broken, thank you, work, spectator, conflict, messy, control, well this is getting good now, Lou, fail, fake, daydreaming, okay stop, stop now, stop now. I've unloosed, unleashed the beast in you. Church, I think, as a word, often is connected with so many deep feelings. And I'm glad that we got to the place where you were able to say more honest things. And I bet if we kept pressing, you'd say even more honest things about it. Disappointment, hurt, gossip, and so on. And I wonder sometimes if church is such a tender word or or a word that conjures up so many images and thoughts and feelings uh, that are deeply held because it touches on a very deeply human desire. And it touches on the deeply human desire to belong, to know where our place is in the world, to figure out where we stand, who are my people I grew up in Malaysia, as I've said to you, and, and my friends give me a hard time about this, saying that I, this works its way into every sermon. Like, yes, Glenn, we know you grew up in Malaysia. But, but I, bring it up again, I bring it up again this morning because, because when, I was, when I was 10, we moved from Malaysia to Portland, Oregon. We lived there for three years. And then we moved back to Malaysia for another four years. And then I moved to the States again uh, when I was 17, this time alone. And there's something about each of those moves, particularly in the teenage years, that pronounced for me the feeling of dislocation. Where do I belong? Who are my people? Um, and, and when I was in 
the States, the first time I sort of felt out of place. Then when I moved back to Malaysia, I kind of had started to acquire this American accent. And so people were like, oh, are you better than us because you speak like that, you know? And aren't you Malaysian too? Do you still eat curry? And the answer is yes. And, uh, and then moving back, this time on my own, when I went, came back to the States to go to college, I mean, I think there was something there too of where do I fit? Do I hang out with the international students or do I hang out with the other students, you know? And, and if you've been to a school where there is a strong international community, you know that that divide sometimes happens. And so there is something, I think, that church plays into that very feeling, the feeling of uh, you walk into the doors and you think, are these my people or are they not? And you start sizing it up and you look at the people and you think, well, I don't know if that's me. I don't know if they're me. Or what are they like? Do I fit? Do I belong? And maybe the hurt is deepest because the hope is greatest. Sometimes the hurt can be deepest when our hope about a certain thing is greatest. And so we come to church with this extraordinary sense of hope because after all, this is the people of God. These are Christians. These are nice people, right? And so the hope is high, but then the hurt ends up being deep. Because you say, well, that wasn't supposed to happen, and that wasn't supposed to happen, and that wasn't supposed to happen. And so it, this whole thing begins to fall apart. What I want us to do this morning is as we explore this question of what is church, that I'd like to first of all reframe the question. Maybe away from the what is church because that takes us into concept language, and maybe to, 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 to rephrase it like this and to say, who is church? Who is church? If we are supposed to be a people, who, who are we? And what gives us our identity? You see, if we don't get this question correct, I think what we tend to do is we tend to define church by our activity. But do you know, with God, identity always precedes activity? With God, settling your identity always comes before your activity. It's that way in salvation. He says, no, you are now, you've been made now righteous in Jesus Christ. This is your identity. And now there will be some activity from grace and from the Spirit. It's the same thing that's true for us as the church. It, right away, we want to jump to the question of what should church do? And we want to jump right away to activity, but if we don't get the question of identity correct, I think this all continues to fall apart. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to zoom all the way out and say, okay, first of all, before we can answer the who is church question, we've got to zoom a few layers out. And then at, by the end of the sermon, we're going to go all the way back in and look specifically at New Life Church and say, what are some family values for us? So let's start with the zoom out. Are you ready? The questions that we need to ask are actually much larger than just who is church. I think we have to start with actually who Jesus is. Now this sounds like a funny thing to say, but I've got on the screen, and forgive me, I made the slides thinking we're still going to have on the, uh, our stuff on the wall, but the man from La Mancha is over at Palmer High School, and so we, we now have the screen, but some of you may be able to see it, you may not. There's a series of four questions on the screen. The first is this, who is Jesus? The second is what is salvation? The third is who is church, and the fourth is what is mission. I suggest to you that these four questions belong together. And there is a theology, theological way of saying it. You could say it's Christology, then it's soteriology, and then it's ecclesiology, and then it's missiology, but never mind all of that. Just look at the questions themselves. Who is Jesus? What is salvation? 
Who is church? And what is mission? Now, these seem like basic elementary questions, but I want to say to you this morning that how we answer the first two questions deeply affects how we, by default, define what church is. So here's a sketch of how I think we tend to answer these questions. First of all, we say, Jesus, who is Jesus? Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. And so he's my personal Lord and Savior. I don't know much else. I can't say anything else about who he is except that he's mine. And he's my itty-bitty personal hula hoop dancer on the dashboard of the car, Lord and Savior. It's my personal pocket Jesus. Okay, maybe we don't mean it quite that way. But then when we say, well, what is salvation? We tend to say, well, salvation in a very narrow sense is forgiveness of sins and a ticket to heaven. So, so Jesus is my personal Savior. What is salvation? What does it mean to be saved? Oh, well, it's sins are forgiven and I go to heaven, right? If you say that, then all of a sudden, what does church become? Church becomes a collection of saved individuals. And you can choose to come or not. Sort of like if you're a bicyclist and you want to go to the cycling club in Colorado Springs. You could come or not, but the truth is you can ride your bicycle on your own, so coming is up to you. But that's what we've made of church, isn't it? Because if Jesus is just your personal Lord and salvation is just about your ticket to heaven, then church is a collection of saved individuals and you can come or not, but you can always ride your bike on your own, so you don't need to come. Right? And then mission becomes extra credit. Guys, if you'd, Ryan, if you'd stay on those four questions, I'm going to keep working on those for a while, if you would. Thank you. Another way we go through the, the set of questions is this way. Jesus, again, personal Lord and Savior. But salvation, we, now this, this is a way of working through the questions from the, the negative or the dramatic. So salvation is an escape from hell. And so for many of you, the gospel was presented to you with, with this ultimatum sort of question in mind. If you died tonight, do you know where you're going? And salvation was all about being saved from the flames of hell. And so it was like, well, I don't want to go to that place, so please. This is why when I was a kid, I I got saved like 137 times, you know, (laughs) because it was all about escaping hell. But then what church becomes is church becomes sort of this lifeboat. Have you ever heard this metaphor? You know, the world is a sinking ship. It's like the Titanic, which, by the way, this is the anniversary of the Titanic sinking. The, church, the world is like the Titanic. It's struck this iceberg. It's going down. But the church is a lifeboat. Jack, it's a boat, Jack. Get in the boat. And so then church takes on this frenetic panic, like, oh my gosh, we've got to get everybody into the lifeboat. And so now that sort of became uncool after the 90s, so now the, the 21st century version of that is we don't talk like that, but really we talk in marketing language. So we've got the best product of all, it's Jesus. And so we've got to use the best marketing of all, and the best branding of all, because we've got Jesus, who's also your ticket out of hell. And so then the church is not the lifeboat, but it becomes God's sales and marketing team. And so all of a sudden, pastors are talking like brand CEOs and reading books about Starbucks and figuring out ways to make the church appealing because we've got a product to pitch and we are, after all, God's sales and marketing team. It would be funnier if it weren't so true. 
And then mission all of a sudden becomes this mandate to attract or to give a message. I want to suggest to you that while there are things that are true about each of the approaches I've mentioned, that there's not enough true about those things. There's something true about each of those statements, but there's not enough true about it. And what I, would want us to, what I want us to do this morning is to just back up a bit and to say, what do we see in the book of Acts? How did they talk about this? It's, inter- it's, it's important for us to say, okay, so, so as, as they answered these questions, what would they have said? What did they appear to say? For one thing, you could search all of the sermons in the book of Acts and not one of them frames the gospel in the, if you died tonight, do you know where you're going question. That's not to say they didn't believe in final judgment. It's just to say that didn't frame their gospel proclamation. That's important. Because if that frames your gospel proclamation, then church will quickly become this panicked sales and marketing team. <laughs> Which is why I'm saying, if, before we can say the question of what is church or who is church, we've got to go all the way back up and say, who's Jesus? So here we go. Are you ready? Who is Jesus? When Peter preaches in Acts 2, he says, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Lord and Christ would be their shorthand answer to the first question. Lord, who is Jesus? Lord and Christ. Now, in, in last year in our sermon series on the book of Acts, I, talked, I did a whole talk about this idea of Lord and Christ. I'll say 30 seconds about it now. Lord is a shorthand way of saying the sovereign one. And the reason it's shorthand for saying the sovereign one is because Lord was, was sometimes the, the substitute word that they would use to stand for Yahweh, God, the, the God above all gods, the sovereign over creation. But also, in Roman terms, Lord was the word that Caesar would use to pronounce his supremacy over every nation. So all of a sudden, Christians yank that terminology and they say, actually, God made Jesus Lord. He's the sovereign one over creation and over the nations. So there. And then they said, and he's, God's also made him the Christ, which is shorthand for the saving one, the Messiah. You know, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Just to clear that up. His parents were not Joseph Christ and Mary Christ and little baby Jesus Christ. You know. Christ is a title. It means the anointed one, the Messiah. And so when Peter says God has made him both Lord and Christ, he's saying Jesus is the sovereign one over all of creation and over every nation, and he's also the saving one. This is the, the, the idea that Leslie Newbigin said so many years ago, that the gospel is not a private opinion, but a public truth. It wouldn't have made the rulers of Rome tremble if they said, Jesus is my personal Lord. They would have said, cool man, what, a little weird, but cool, whatever. But when they stand up, when they stood up and said, Jesus is the sovereign Lord over every nation and over all of creation, He's the long-awaited saving one, and in His name there is salvation and freedom and peace, all the things, Caesar, you promised to give, by the way. That was the big threat. And then if you say, okay, if that's who Jesus is, then salvation, what is it? Salvation is God working within His world to redeem and restore it. The New Testament reading this morning was from Acts 3, where Peter again is saying, look, you need to repent, because the time is coming when God will send Jesus again, who will bring about the what? The restoration of what? Of what? Of all things. 
the restoration of all things. This is God's big plan of salvation. Now, it is true, at the very heart of that plan, what's the very personal thing God is restoring? You and me. Putting us right with God. What's the fundamental root of everything else that's broken in the world? Is, it, is, is God like sort of Miss America, you know, out to so- solve world hunger and, you know, kind of these ambiguous, you know, lofty... No, no, God says, look, here's where I'll start. I'll start by putting the very core of what's broken in the world. I'm going to start by restoring you, forgiving your sins, setting you right with God. But please know that your personal forgiveness of sins is a part of a much larger salvation, and that is God restoring all things. This is why the lifeboat sinking ship thing is a lousy picture of salvation. Because what it says is, God doesn't care about this world or creation or the nations or poverty or hungry orphans. God doesn't care about any of that. But if you would just jump on this lifeboat, you'll be fine. And you can go floating away in the sweet by and by. But the early apostles says, no, God's plan is to restore all things. And that day is coming. But you know what you can do right now? Repent and let Him restore you and your heart and your relationship with Him. So the two things are connected. If that's true, then church all of a sudden... What is church? Who is the church? It becomes this kingdom community formed by the Spirit, living now as it will be then. We're going to unpack that more. And then finally, what about mission? We'll talk about that next Sunday. So, so let's take, begin to zoom in just a little bit more on the church word. If Jesus is the sovereign one and the saving one, if salvation is God working within His world, to rescue and redeem and restore it, to put it back together again, then what is church? What do we mean when we say church is a kingdom community? We're going to look at this phrase here, the kingdom community. I think one, one accent we could say about kingdom community is that it's an alternate society. Now... <laughs> For any of you, you know, who, who lived through the 70s, you'd say alternate society. Yeah, baby, that's, the, that's what I'm talking about. This is the language. And, and I do think, I, I want to say two phrases. If we put the stress on the kingdom part of kingdom community, you'll really begin to see alternate society. Because, because what does the kingdom part of kingdom community mean? It means that the church are a people who begin to live as if Jesus is king now. As if Jesus is actually king. Now, I I want to encourage you to think through the implications of this because I I see a lot of Christians on Facebook who are not sure if Jesus' kingship means anything for this world right now. All they think of is that Jesus is their personal Lord and Savior who will get them to heaven one day. But in the meantime, we've got to... Should I go there? In the meantime, we've got to blindly sort of trumpet our own specific political ideologies, economic theories, support of violence, all of these different things, because we don't really believe Jesus is king here and now. We just think he's a personal savior who'll take us to fly away someday. But for now, we've got to, we've, we are primarily Americans. I am an American now. I've become a citizen. And I'm proud to be an American. I was telling Holly just the other day, there are so many beautiful things as we're going through American history for preparing curriculum stuff for our kids whom we homeschool. I think there's so many remarkable things about the American experiment and the American story that make it unique and make it special. But it's still not the kingdom of God. It's still not the kingdom of God. 
And so this alternate society aspect of the church means we are the people who live as if Jesus is king, even now. And sometimes it goes along with what people say, but most often it does not. And we cannot have any other grid other than the Jesus as king grid. The Jesus as king grid makes all other grids collapse and fall apart. And so everything has to be run through that. When we start in two weeks, we'll start a series on the Sermon on the Mount. This is going to be what we'll talk about. Because the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying, look, this is my, my, my Magna Charter. This is me saying, for the new kingdom community that I am forming, this is the way you live by the Spirit. And he starts to talk to them about forgiveness and turning the other cheek. He starts to talk to them about nonviolence. And he starts to talk to them about loving their enemies. And it is the most bizarre, contradictory, unpatriotic thing sometimes. And ultimately, Jesus was crucified because all of the rulers said, that's going to be a threat to national security. And Jesus says, I am a threat to your security. Period. I'm king. And the people I'm forming are a people I'm calling to live in a different way. It doesn't line up with the values you always think it lines up with. I'll stop there. Kingdom community. Alternate society is one emphasis on it if we stress the kingdom word. If what happens if we stress the community word? Then you get this idea of a covenant people. A covenant people. You know... It's often overlooked that when one of the first things the apostles did in the book of Acts was to replace Judas. Like, why? Like, was there such a role that was necessary? We needed another treasurer, you know? (laughs) No. They needed to get from 11 back to 12. Why? Because 12 is a special number. 12 signified for them a new people. 12 reminded them of the 12 tribes of Israel. And that was the shape of God's covenant people in that part of the story. And they needed to get back to 12 as a way of saying the church is God's covenant people. The church is the one, are, the, are the ones that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have formed in covenant relationship with Himself. We belong together. C.S. Lewis wrote a bit about the difference between a collective and a community. Do you know the difference between a collective and a community? Lewis was writing at a time when, when the state was very interested in grouping people together by all the things they had in common. That's a collective. A collective is a collection of individuals who all have things in common. They belong together. Oh, all of you that live this way, let's live right here. Or all of you that have a certain income, live right here. Which, by the way, is a bit of the story of modern city planning. Modern city planning is based on the notion of the collective, that we need to get like strata people living by each other. If you look at old downtowns, like ours even, you'll see that it's mixed. Mixed, mixed zones, mixed layers, there's residential, there's commercial, it's all sort of in. But in the new sort of sub- suburban planning of the last few decades, it's very much based on the collective idea. Let's just put all of these people here, and then we'll put all of the shops right here, and then we'll put open space here. It's the collective idea. But a community is different than a collective because a community says... You belong together even though you're nothing like one another. (laughs) It's the difference actually between a club and a family. If I started a bridge club, which I wouldn't do because I don't know how to play bridge, but if I started a bridge club 
Everybody who would come would come that learned how to pr- play bridge. That's a collective. But if I said, I have a family, it's Holly and Sophia and Nora and Jonas and Jane, and they're all very different. Sophia likes words. Don't know where she gets that from. Nora likes art. Jonas likes to make people laugh. And Jane likes to smile at the moment. She's nine months old. They're different. Nobody, no city planner, no bureaucrat sort of sat down and said, let's find personality types, group them together and say, okay, you are family unit A. That would be awkward. Instead, what God in His genius does is puts people together that you wouldn't think belong together. I mean, how many of you have family members that you're like, I can't believe that's my family member? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Now, now, if you're sitting next to him, be careful. But... but that's the difference between a community and a collective. A collective says, let's just get everybody all neat and lined up and we'll be sterilized and happy and all this stuff. And God says, no, 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 no. The vision of the world is a community where everybody's different, but you belong together. Church is not a collective. Church is a community. Church is meant to be this redeemed covenant people, this community. So, one of the questions that should never show up when you're praying about a new church is not... Well, are they just like me? The question is, Lord, is this the family you're placing me in? Is this the family you're placing me in? As opposed to, hmm, I kind of like that, but I don't like that. Who cares? (laughs) Is this the family that God is placing you in? All right. I've meddled enough. The phrases in the creed that we said this morning, I believe in one holy, and we, we subbed out the word Catholic for worldwide because I know I'm just trying to avoid some angry emails of like, we're not Catholic, you know. And then I'll have to say, Catholic is a lower C, it means worldwide. But perhaps we'll, we'll, we'll be past that at some point and we can say the creed the way it was written, right? One holy Catholic and apostolic church. Think about those words, one and Catholic, one and worldwide. The people of God is one people, regardless of how diverse it is. Regardless if they worship with loud drums or if they worship with robes and choirs, regardless if they... That's why we prayed for other churches this morning to remind us that that the people of God is one. It's actually much larger than even this local expression. One worldwide. The apostolic and the holy part. It's interesting, you know, I was reading through some of the Protestant confessions this week and the sections of what they said about the church. And in classic Luther fashion, the Augsburg Confession, you know, he says, the church is the true believers. Never, leave it to Luther to never pass up an opportunity to stick it to the man, you know. The true believers. That's true. That's the holy part of the creed. But then, you know what's interesting is they almost all, actually all of the Protestant creeds had this to say about the church. They said the church is where the sacraments are administered. I think it's telling, and this is not a shame on you, it's a shame on me, but it's telling that in our modern conceptions of church, not one of us would ever think to mention the sacraments. We don't think, why would I mention the sac- sacra what? I know sacrilegious. What's the sacrament? Is that like the testament, you know? Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> 
But do you know why even all the Protestants said the church is where the sacraments are rightly administered? Because it's the sacrament that reminds us that we all belong at one table. It's the sacrament that reminds us that we're all part of one story. So, how can our image of church be shaped if the only thing that feeds our imagination about church is the world's ideas of clubs and groups and collectives? Even to say the word family sometimes is a tricky word because we don't always have good families to give us that picture. But it's Jesus' table that begins to remind us, hey, hey guys, hey guys, this is where it began. This began at a table when Jesus gathered his 12 disciples around him, one of whom was getting ready to betray him. You're trying to tell me someone doesn't belong at the table when even Judas was there at Jesus' table? How about Peter, who denied Jesus? He was there at the Lord's table too. He's saying there's no room in church for the doubter. The deconverted, the skeptic, the cynic, the betrayer. I don't, want to, I don't want to go to church with those people. Really? Jesus did. Jesus ate with Judas. Jesus ate with Peter. You want to do better than Jesus? You can't. This is the table. This is where the people of God get formed. There are five words, we'll go through this quickly, that when we think about New Life Church, Pastor Brady and the elders have said, look, this is, these are things we want to be our local family values. Just as a larger family has a family line and, and a big story, but then there's little micro local families, small family units, I think that's the same with local churches. First word is kingdom. That New Life... We, it's our prayer that we, we would always put the kingdom of God, seek first the kingdom of God. Now, sometimes people juxtapose kingdom versus church. Have you ever heard people do that? Man, I don't know about church. I'm a kingdom person. Do you know how silly that is? That's, if the church is a sign of the kingdom, that's like saying, I don't, I, don't need a, I, I, I don't need the marriage ring. I've got my marriage. You're like, right, but the ring points to the covenant of marriage. They're not supposed to be set against one another. Or, you know, Jim and Martha Cole, they're married. They, as a specific husband and wife, point to the larger covenant of marriage. So there's, there's no disconnected. The church, every local church, points to the greater story of God's kingdom. There's no such thing as saying, I'm a kingdom person, I'm not really a church guy. Huh? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. I believe, it's like saying, I believe in the covenant of marriage. I just don't want to get married. To her. Just kind of date for a while. Maybe move in with each other. We don't want to get... But I believe in marriage. You would start to ask a few more questions, right? It's the same thing. I believe in the kingdom, but I just don't know if I want to go to any church. Uh, let's think about this. Okay? Kingdom, really, if you're looking for something to juxtapose kingdom against, it's, it's empire. See, kingdom is always God-glorifying. Empire is always self-aggrandizing. And so, at New Life, our prayer is that God help us to always seek first the kingdom so that God would always be glorified. The second word here is relationships. I think it's a, a value, a high value, that we can always be personal with one another, we can always be communal, remember that we belong together. 
One of the reasons when we started New Life Downtown was to say, could we, could we, could we branch out, could this spill over into another place where people can be personal to one another? And I love it, by the way. I love hearing stories of different ones of you inviting others over for meals and, and going out to eat afterwards. We're still in the Easter feast. This is the third Sunday of Easter. The feasting continues. You should keep the party going by continuing to share meals, invite people over. It can get expensive if you're eating out all the time, but you can have them over, you know. Thirdly, the word is rest. I love Pastor Brady for putting the word rest in our core values. Because <laughs> you know what that says to me? It says, identity comes before activity. What we do as a church will never be as important as who we are as the church. If we can't be the family to one another, none of the other busyness that we do matters. It doesn't, you know? So, along the word rest, under the word rest, I wrote down a couple words like sustainable and simple. <laughs> you think? <laughs> I, we have a lot of volunteers that, that are part of our New Life Downtown team, a lot of people who serve as part of our team. And it's plenty work as it is, and we could use more. And we'll, I'll tell you, opportunities to jump in and join in coming weeks with our setup team or stage crew or whatever. There's plenty of work to be done that will help other people rest more. <laughs> if we had a bigger team. But there's also a lot of things that we're going to end up saying no to so that we can keep it simple. Um, the, the trap of anything is as a church grows is to say, we should do this. Oh, we should do that. Oh, and we should do this. Oh, and we could do that. Dilution and duplicating, duplicating efforts, diluting efforts are the great enemies of growth. And what we want to say is, how can we keep living at a simple simpler pace. The world keeps you busy enough. You got enough things vying for your attention saying, come here, take your kids here, do this thing, do this thing. And you're like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And as the church, as your pastor, I don't want to add to that and say, and do this, and do this. What I want to invite you into is echoing the words of Jesus in the message translation, come and I'll teach you the unforced rhythms of grace. Participate in the things that this is your season to participate in. Walk in this. Don't just take on busyness for busyness sake. Serve, give, be called out of your comfort, but do it from, work from a place of rest. There's such a difference in working from a place of rest versus working from a place of panic, isn't there? Fourthly, intentional. <laughs> My hope is that we're somewhere between sloppy and slick. And that we're intentional about it. You know, we're intentional about having a wooden cross at the center of the stage. Um, We like what that says. I'm intentional about preaching from the floor instead of on par with the cross. It's not casting fingers at anyone who does it differently. I'm just saying to you that we're intentional about the way that we lay out things. We're intentional about making the service lead to the communion table. But I will say, (laughs) not everything you see is on purpose. Um, my making the slides too low for some of you to read is not on purpose. <laughs> and, I, and I say that to once again say that in the coming weeks, I'll talk to you about ways that you can jump in and serve and pitch in like a family does. So that we can all be intentional together. Because there's lots more we want to be intentional about that we can't get to quite yet. Because we're determined to be at a sustainable pace. So we'll end up saying no or wait to something until we can do it sustainably. 
But that means there's room for you to serve and help. And finally, the word generosity. One of these days, I've got to tell you the full story of how Pastor Brady talks about all of you at New Life Downtown. Because it's a beautiful picture of a generous leader. You know, there are many leaders who want everything to look like them so that it speaks of them. But a generous leader ends up multiplying his life because he's let others flourish. And the short story of it is, is as we were talking about this idea of New Life Downtown, very quickly he said, I've been paying attention to what's going on in Glenn's life. I've been paying attention to the Lord's work in Glenn's life. I love what I'm seeing happening on Sunday nights, which was our Sunday night service back in 2009 and 2010, 2011. And he said, I want that to come out of him. That's the father's heart. Father's heart doesn't clone. A father's heart calls out of his sons and daughters the things that God puts in them. That's generosity. Generosity is not saying, okay, you can do this, but I want it. Generosity is saying, come to the table. There's a seat for you. Generosity is saying, there's something in you. Let's let it come out. I, I want this to spill over into all of us as a people. One of the great joys for Holly and I is to hear stories of generosity among you that we had nothing to do with initiating. I love that. Someone says, oh, I, I'm going to start a, a group of people to, to um, be a hospitality team. We're going to find out who's had babies or who's in the hospital. and We're going to bring them meals. Wow, that's a great idea. I didn't even come up with that. If someone says, ah, we found this family that we're going to take in and we're going to do this. Or, or, yeah, I invited so-and-so to my dinner group and it just, you know. Wow. Those are stories of generosity that is exponentially multiplying, not because some brilliant leader is strategically making it happen, but because God, by His Spirit, is abounding in His grace toward all of you. Amen? As we come to the table this morning, I want you to to just kind of take a moment and to pray and to say, Lord Jesus, You set the lonely in families. Show me how You can set me into this family. Show me how You're placing me in this family. Show me the place to belong. Show me the place to begin to serve. Show me the place to multiply this generosity toward others. Show me the way that I can... Let your grace, the grace of your table, continue to flow down. Would you take a moment, just quietly where you are, begin to pray.